Pity the fool. Don't be one. It's that simple, actually. And yet, we're bad at it. We're just really, really, really bad at it. And so God has to pity us as fools first. The first step to wisdom is to know you're not it. Get to the very end of the book. Agur, a guy who, I, I, I do have a commentary I could look at. I've never gotten to it. But a guy who I know nothing about. I've never heard of him. I don't know who he talks to. I know he, I do. I know he talked to Ithiel and Ukal. He gave him an utterance. I don't know who those guys are either. But the first thing he says is, I'm stupid. And the second thing he says is, I've never learned anything. And then he asks a riddle. It's a really cool riddle. It asks if you know who the father and the son are, and if you know the son's name. It's quite a thing to find in the Old Testament, I'll tell you that. So the first step is just know you don't know. Whatever you think you know, you don't know unless you've read it in the Bible. Everything else is a story you tell yourself. Some of it's true. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you don't actually have certainty there, and it can actually change. Because many of the things that we perceive as realities are only seasons. They're temporary realities, and they come and they go. But the words of the Bible, the wisdom of the king of Israel specifically, is not a season. It'll teach you about them, though. Teach you how to endure them. Teach you how to walk through them. Teach you how God is not a God of many faces. You've heard it said this way by the fools. All paths lead to God, right? I mean, they've been saying that for a long time. Hinduism will say it too. We have many gods, but they're all trying to go to the same place. Okay, well, that means you have a God of many faces, right? Can we agree? Whatever God is the final God, you all get to behind it all. He's the many faces of all these other gods. He's the many faces of paganism and creation. You know, the tree is the face of God. Okay, I don't care. Fine. If that's true, your God's a trickster. It means you can't trust him. It means you don't know who he is. It means he's always going to change. And Jesus Christ is not a trickster. He is not a God of many faces. He is a God of one image and that of being crucified. It's far less about his facial features, the structure or the color of his skin. As about what he did as the gene pool of humanity reduced to one. Beating death for us, yes? And this is then the wisdom we see at work that's beyond wisdom. In the gospel reading, which is appointed for this day, Jesus enters this town called Nain. I'm, I'm going to focus this morning on Proverbs 8, but, but this story is one of my favorites to preach on. I love preaching on it. Because Jesus isn't wise by Jewish standards in this story. He does the most unwise, even foolish thing you can possibly do. As a healthy, clean Israelite male, he touches the dead, decaying, beer body, corpus sickness of a dead man. Now for us, we might think, ooh, gross, but for them, it means now you can't go to Christmas Eve services this year if that's what's about to happen. You're out. You can't come to family dinner. There's all sorts of stuff you can't do now. That was dumb, Jesus. We're in a big crowd. Now we're all like wondering what's going on. We're following you. You just became dirty. We thought you were the Messiah. It's very easy to look at what Jesus does and see it as breaking the word of God even. 
But here's the thing. The word of God can't break. And anybody who's afraid of that doesn't know who God is. And maybe doesn't know what the word, the word's not going to break. And this is what Jesus shows you. Is that it's really about who you are and how much you can see. So, of course, you, me, normal humans, when we touch something dirty, the dirt gets on us, right? Get your hands dirty, go wash them, get it off. So that's how spirituality worked in the Jewish practice of our religion. So if you got next to something that was dirty as religion, you had to go wash it off. And there were all sorts of rules for washing it off. Now, what Jesus shows here very clearly is that he is so clean that when he touches dirty, the dirty gets cleaned off by his clean rubbing onto it. That's what happens in the middle of this big crowd. All these people and this woman, this widow, weeping over her only son, which is her only source of income other than begging. It's a world in which there's no locks on the door and you're just another mouth to feed at 75. So what's she going to do? Again, Jesus walks in. He sees that. He says, this is for whom I came. No one should have to live like this. No one should have to be that unclean. And so, of course, the whole thing is not just about him giving the son to her, but about him giving all of us back to each other on that great day in which his resurrection achieved for all mankind will explode out of our bodies, minds, hearts, souls on his return. Jesus is wisdom. That's the point we want to take from what I just said. Jesus is wisdom. Even when it doesn't look like it, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not wandering around accidentally doing stuff, nor is he sort of like on a, like a, a track path where he doesn't have any thoughts and he's just doing and the Holy Spirit says, say something and I move on. No, no, no. He was a full grown man with all of his faculties and he had a plan and part of his plan was to make sure it got written down for us to read and know his mind. That's how good he is. And so when you come to Proverbs 1, verse 1, and it says, uh, I think I can quote it, Meshle uh, Shlomo ben David Melech Yisrael. The Proverbs are the words. I like the word words a little bit there, riddles. Uh, the Proverbs of Solomon, Shlomo, okay, uh, ben David, son of David, Melech Israel, king in Israel. That's the first line. Okay. Now, Shlomo, definitely the name of Solomon, the actual son of David, who built the temple, was promised wisdom and wrote the book, for sure. Also, interestingly, kind of like an insult name amongst the in-no Jewish crowd. That is, if I say, hey, Shlomo, it's like, hey, wise guy, you know, but with the other word, with the A at the start. Yeah? Uh, that's what it means. Uh, you're too wise for your own good. You think too highly of yourself, Shlomo. But there it is now as the name of the king of Israel, as a word that, again, means wise guy. It still means wise guy. So it's always meant. Just now it's an insult. It used to be a compliment. So now read it one more time here. The, the Proverbs of the wise man, the son of David, king in Israel. And if that's only Solomon, then I'm a fish. That's Jesus. The wise man, the son of David, the king in Israel, 
These are his Proverbs. Oh, that means the whole book of Proverbs is from Jesus for you. And it says right away to give you knowledge, wisdom, and discipline. Three things that work together. And if you try to pull them apart or only have one, your triangle is going to fall down or your stool is going to fall over. You need all three to be a good person. Knowledge, wisdom, and discipline. We've talked about this a little before. It's like information, being informed, and being in formation, yeah, doing something good with the information. Yeah. It tells you right away, do that with these words. Dig into these words, and what will come from it is a treasury, a storehouse, a great bastion of conscience, conscience of soul, of fear of Jesus that isn't afraid of anything anymore. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, I believe, and test me on this, y'all scholars out there, I believe firmly Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 is not just an introduction, but something of an in introductory dictionary for the book. That is, it tells you how to read the rest of the book by giving you key words to look for that will show up again and again. The challenge is that in English, they don't do very well, and they give you a bunch of muddled language right there in the first seven verses. Nonetheless, some of the words you can track Knowledge, understanding, that word information will show up again. Um, uh, I'm sorry, instruction will show up again. I like discipline for that word, but the word instruction will show up. The word law will begin to show up a lot. So there are common vocabulary that the book itself wants you to understand within the book before you go anywhere else. So let me, as an example here, use the idea of law and gospel and how challenging it can be for a Lutheran to read the Bible because of our doctrine of law and gospel. Because our doctrine of law and gospel teaches us that we know that the written letter of the law kills us, it shows us our sin, and so it ultimately is something of an enemy to us, we tend to think of the law as a bad thing. And we distinguish it from the gospel, the salvation Jesus worked in us, as a good thing. But that means when we see things like love the law of the Lord, we're like, why doesn't it say love the gospel? I think that's wrong. It should say love the gospel. And we can't help it. We can't help it. We've just used that word law as a bad word for so long, we just don't like it anymore. And so there's a challenge for us to enter these books. We have to rediscover their language. That's why you got to spend time in them. You can't just rush through. You got to spend time in wisdom, especially, especially. Now, let me give you a little trick for dealing with that law gospel idea. If it's ever been confusing to you, this will help too. If you've always heard Lutherans go, law, gospel, and you're like, what are they talking about? What we mean is God speaks curses and God speaks promises. And you should know the difference. Boom, that's it. It's a really amazing way to look at the Bible. In the Bible, there's curses and there's promises. And you really want to know the difference. Yeah. Now, rewinding here, wisdom is how you tell the difference between good and evil. It is going to teach you how to know the difference between a curse and a promise. Again, meditating on Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, just by itself, it'll, if, you're, if you're up for the big, deep dive, try that one. It's, it's hard. I've been in it a long time. I'm not out of it yet. Um, after that, Proverbs 1, 8, all the way up until chapter 7, is just as much of a power-packed nugget of dictionary and encyclopedia of wisdom, I think, but I don't understand it very well, straight up. I, just, I haven't spent nearly enough time in it. So I don't want to tell you don't go there. 
I'm going to tell you, it's kind of the hardest place to start in the book. It sounds repetitive. The language is a little bit mushy. It's just, it'll do you good, but you'll do a little better if we get further ahead. Okay, so I'm kind of giving you the outline right now. Proverbs 1, awesome, chunky stuff. A bunch more of that up to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, it starts to sound like a story more and more. And you have a story that's going to run through chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. And in it, you're going to have these two paths, these two ways that have already been a little in development as, as poetry. They're going to show up not as two roads, wide and narrow, but as two women. Two women. A, a whore and a, a lady. And the whore's name is Folly. Call her Harlot if you think that's a nicer word. Uh, the lady, uh, her name is Wisdom. And Solomon goes into, Jesus goes into quite depth, uh, explaining the difference between them as women. And so, again, if you want just like a Friday evening read, Proverbs 7, 8, and 9, right there by itself, shut it. Go to bed. Go hang out with people. It'll be a good experience for you. And for you young men especially, if you want to find a woman to marry who is worth marrying, spend some time in Proverbs 7, 8, and 9. Because, I mean, it talks about Folly, well, she's kind of like this. Hmm? And, and wisdom, she's a lot like this. And so if you can learn the difference, you can be like, oh, that person, that person, a fool, a wise person. Now, what do you do with that when you get there? Somebody in the Lutheran heart was like, oh, I might have judged them then. Uh, no. Not the way that Jesus means when he says, judge not lest ye be judged. That means you saw them, you thought they were foolish, you hated them, and you scoffed at how they're going to go to hell. And you didn't do any of that. Instead, you saw them, you thought, that's foolish, I don't want to do it. That's called being wise. It's called being wise. That's not judging. Now, not the way Jesus is telling you not to. Jesus does want you to judge with wisdom. He wants the words and actions that you see to be judged according to what his word says. And he doesn't want you to do the things that his word says, those are evil. Huh? I mean, again, it's, it's simple enough for a child. And yet we struggle with it because of our complexities, I guess I could say. So we're going to look at chapter 8 here in a moment, review again, or not review, uh, overall structure. From chapter 9, you hit chapter 10, where I said before this morning, your task for this year to grow in wisdom is to open anywhere in Proverbs from chapter 10 to chapter 31, grab one verse, read it, make a note on it, and then do whatever you want. You can throw it away, put it in your pocket, do whatever you want, but make a note and then go on, do it the next day. The reason I say to start at chapter 10 and go up to chapter 31 is because most of that section is single-shot Proverbs. Even the ones that are in little packages of three verses, it's very easy to just drop out of the sky, grab it, and take off again, right? Whereas if you're in chapter 8, as you'll see, you could drop out of the sky into it, but there's just a lot more really going on around it that's clearly connected to it. Where in the rest of the book, there are connections, but they're not obvious. They only show up as you start to ponder it and return to the web of knowledge that's sitting there. Yeah? So that's, again, what I'm encouraging you to do. A proverb a day keeps the fool away. And that means from your heart, right? So chapter 10 to 29 are kind of the, the chunky place of that. I want to give a little hat tip to chapter 30 and 31 before we finish with uh, looking at Proverbs 8. Um, I mentioned Agur earlier. Chapter 30 has become one of my favorite things I don't know about in the Bible, and I don't think I'll know about it for a very long time. It's, it's all from this guy, Agur, who we don't know. 
And it's as confusing a section of the Bible as you'll probably ever see. Short of maybe Revelation or Daniel, all that, you know, the beasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, But they are like classic riddles. So if you're nerd enough to know the story of the Hobbit and how this little guy named Bilbo falls down a big hole and finds a ring. And there's this guy down there who wants the ring. His name's Gollum. And they have a little riddle contest about, you know, eggs and I don't know, other things. And, and it's very British, this, this riddle contest. So there's, there's this history of word games in English, riddles. And the thing about Agur is he's just like that. It's like you're reading J.R.R. Tolkien's stuff in the middle of the Bible. And it, it's weird. It feels different. Um, but it's also really kind of cool and worth pondering. I've come to love it. Chapter 31 is similarly kind of out of the blue. They're the words of King Lemuel's mother. And again, to my knowledge, I'm sure there's a scholar who on YouTube can correct me, but to my my knowledge, I have no idea who Lemuel is, how he was a king, much less who his mom was. But ladies, you do need to understand this. This is like a chapter in the Bible written by a woman. Like it really is. The words of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him. I mean, it wasn't written by a woman, but it was taught by a woman. That's incredibly unique. Maybe, the, I mean, you got the Song of Miriam, right? And the Song of Hannah but in, in the Magnificat. But aside from that, you don't, you don't have much that you've actually had Jesus work through you into the Bible as text. And this whole chapter is that. And yet it's the chapter women I know in this century hate the most. I've started this organization called the Sons of Solomon. Not really an organization. It's called a movement. Prayers built upon praying parts of the scripture together about who we are as men in a time which we've forgotten what it means to be men. We've done that, those of us who are into that, very much on purpose. Because we think that the culture doesn't know what a man or a woman is. Just doesn't. And I mean, backwards, upside down. So as soon as we started doing that, we began hearing calls for what about the women? Which is an interesting thing. That every time you say, go women, you never will hear what about the men. But in our culture right now, I don't think it's always this way. But but right now, we're we're at a peak of this. If you say, what about the men? People say, oh, what about the women? It's, it's really interesting how hard it is to be a man right now and be allowed to just be like, well, the men are okay too, right? I mean, it really is hard to even get to that point. In any case, so we start the Sons of Solomon prayers, and right away we have ladies asking, can we pray them too? And I said, they're in the Bible. Do whatever you want. They're the Psalms. Absolutely, you can pray them. Well, can we pray them like the Sons of Solomon do? No, you're not a man. But I'll make one up for you on the spot, and I found a bunch for the Daughters of Wisdom. We started it, and I found... Three, three Psalms and a section of the Proverbs about being a woman in a time where nobody knows what it means to be a woman. Same goal, same program. Put it out there. Hard to get any traction on that one because no one wants to read Proverbs 31 once a day. No one wants to do it, ladies. And we wonder why the church is shrinking and dying. I mean, there, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. There, there's two reasons people don't want to read it. Okay? One is you think... It's wrong, like it's chauvinistic or something, which is to just not have read it, basically. (laughs) And the other one is that when you read it, you're like, oh, this this woman's amazing. This woman's amazing. I'm not this woman. And when you do that, that's when I need you to know Jesus says you are that woman. You are. Precisely when you feel like you're not. Precisely when it says she does this, you're like, but I don't do that. You are. He says, because I'm in you and I already have. And so now that you see it, you understand it and you'll begin to grow. 
That doesn't mean you'll walk out and every week you'll buy a field and make money on it. It does say she'll do that. But that doesn't mean you're going to actually buy a field and make money, let alone make money all the time. What it means is that the woman who has no fear because Jesus is her God is going to walk through this life the same way the men will, but as a woman instead. Those words there, Proverbs 31, from a woman through her son are there for you, for you, to build you as biblical you. Yeah. All right, now back to chapter eight, where Lady Wisdom will close us today with her call. Does not wisdom call? I mean, I guess some people might say no. It means, is not the Bible available to you? Have you never heard that Jesus said he's God and that he defeated death? Do you know that he promises the Holy Spirit to all who heard what I just said and don't say no to it? So if you didn't say no to it, you already have the Holy Spirit. And now he says, good, that's the first wisdom. Come get more. Does not wisdom call? But the reason the question's there is because God's experience is that as much as he calls, we don't want to hear. We just don't want it. We turn our backs again and again. But she keeps calling. Does not understanding raise her voice? That's the mercy of Jesus, right? We turn our backs. He won't. He keeps coming. So he goes out to where we are, the heights beside the way, the crossroads. She takes her stand, right, where she can find people in the public, not hiding. Wisdom doesn't need to hide. Wisdom doesn't need to close its doors and hope the world goes away. Wisdom knows that if you have to walk out into a storm, you walk with a God bigger than the storm. And so if the storm blows you away, that was God's doing. And it's actually going to be for your good and the good of the world. Wisdom knows that. Wisdom believes that. So then she goes out to the entrance. She cries out to you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. That means, again, there is not a single human anywhere that this is not a promise for. Everybody gets it, not just pastors. Christianity is not a religion that only pastors should know how to talk about. That's nonsense. That's priestcraft. That's separating you from the word. These are your words. Simple ones. If you are, learn prudence. It will teach you. Yeah? Fools, if you're actually a fool, there's hope for you. Learn sense. Hear. For I will speak noble things. Can you believe that about the Bible? There's noble things in the Bible for you. For you to be because you are, because God's already done it. He's going to open your eyes to how it lives in you according to Christ. From his lips come what is right, so from yours will also. For his mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to his lips. All right, I want to zoom in on verse 8. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. What that means in modern American terms, again, is that every word of the Bible is trustworthy. Everything written in the Bible is for your instruction and for your good. Anytime you come to it and you say, I don't think that's right, you're wrong. Anytime you come to it and you think this can't be, the answer is, yeah, it probably can't. You just are too small-minded at this point compared to, say, God. Again, wisdom begins to know this, that all the words of God are straight. They're all good for you. 
Yeah? They are straight to him who understands, verse 9 says, and right to those who find knowledge. So take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than gold because wisdom is better than jewels and all that you desire cannot compare with her. I think right now is, in many ways, a time of reckoning. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in the announcements, actually. Uh, for us just privately here at St. Paul. Uh, but the, the thing I can say publicly is that what is evident is that the story of the Bible and the story of the American empire are on two very different tracks. This is a time that calls for wisdom. Doesn't mean it calls for rebellion. Doesn't mean it calls for panic. Doesn't mean it calls for anything except wisdom. So since it's so clear, there's so little wisdom. Since it's so clear, there's so many liars. Can I again one more time encourage you to pray Psalm 23 in the morning, Psalm 1 at night, and take one proverb a day as your boilerplate for digging more into the Bible with me this year. And if I didn't bore you this morning, maybe Friday night pull out Proverbs 7, 8, and 9 over dinner as a family. Or just by yourself out on the porch. Want to come over to my lake house and sit and read it with me? Give me a call. Maybe we'll do that. Yeah. Amen.